Good afternoon, everybody. It is good to be home. It feels awesome. It's, it's really interesting because there's like different stages of being home, especially with all the craziness of coming back from Israel. It's like landing on American soil was like, wow, home, the safest land in the world, Chicago. And then, <laughs> you know, and then we got to Columbus and it was like, oh, wow, good to be home. Then we got to my house, wow, good to be home. And now it's like, I'm at church, this is about as home as I can get, so it's good to be here. Well, things in the media lately have painted the world in a really dark light. Dark light, what an interesting way to say that. But things just seem really dark right now. The attack on Israel by Hamas is depraved and the support of it by some Americans is just disgusting to me. And with all this going on, on top of every other depth that the world has sunk to morally in the last few thousand years, it's like the air itself is beginning to feel heavy. A reasonable person's mind can only take so much of this, you know, before it goes from being informed to just flat out being depressed. And no one wants to be unaware of the things going on in the world, but at the same time, who can remain sane if they just take it in all the time, constantly? And in the church, there's, there's been a lot of discussion lately on various opinions on, on our messaging. Should we focus more on the evil state of the world so that no one is confused about how strongly we stand against it? Or should we focus more on the hope that we believe is coming at the return of Jesus Christ? If we focus too much on hope, does it mean we're putting our heads in the sand against the evil in the world? Are we turning a blind eye to that? Or if we focus too much on evil, are we losing sight of the reality of the hope that we're supposed to have? What's the balance? This is the question that keeps coming up. Now, personally, I tend to think that we could stand to focus a little bit more heavily on the good news of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. I get personally overwhelmed by living in a world full of sin, reading about the sin in the world, trying to combat the sin in the world, and then coming to church and being reminded how sinful the world is. It does get exhausting, but... I do understand the need for a balance. And that balance is really, really important, especially in light of all that's going on in the world today. To have just gotten back from Israel, to have looked the people in the eyes and then left and to read and see the things that are happening to them, it is heartbreaking. It is a horrible evil that's happening right now. How do I avoid talking about that? How do I avoid calling that out as despicable? and sinful. But then, how do I balance that with a hope that's supposed to take precedence over that? And as I thought about this the last few days, I've come to some things that have helped me personally find a balance that I think is helpful and hopeful, and I'd like to share that with you today. Because I do think there's a connection between doom and hope. Healing is the most beautiful after pain and death have been their worst. Grace is so amazing after sin has made grace seem impossible. The morning is most desired when night feels like it's never going to stop. And hope is most hoped for when doom seems like it is its most certain. And the kingdom of God goes hand in hand with repentance. And I think this is the answer, the kingdom of God. If we spend our time 
understanding and thinking about the kingdom of God to the best of our ability, I think it will naturally bring us clarity of understanding on the severe lack that we experience in this world. To clarify the vision of the kingdom of God is to recognize how blurry and impure this world is. And sometimes I think we do this backwards. We gain so much clarity on how awful the world is that the kingdom just seems to be a really, really long way off. It's hard to see. So today I'd like to take a look through time and circumstance and pain and death and suffering and evil to the kingdom of God and look at it in a way that we might not be used to looking at it in order to give us a clearer vision of that hope. Because to me, and I think the Bible supports this, the kingdom of God represents at its core life. Yes, it is also submission to God's authority. It is finally dwelling with God as his people. It is unity amongst all people. But it is all of those things forever. It is eternal life. It is the final realization of eternity that has been placed in the hearts of man. And it's the reception of the gift of eternal life. While God is incredibly complex and the details of all that is to happen aren't fully able to be grasped, Paul says we we see through a glass dimly, God often presents this, this grand story and this final reward at the end of the kingdom in very simple terms. Good versus evil, light and darkness, a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. And when we follow this pattern of uncomplicating our hope in the kingdom, a lot can be drawn out of the scripture and the picture becomes that much more detailed. So following the pattern of the kingdom being life and the way of the world being death, I'd like to turn to Romans and see Paul's telling of this human story. Romans chapter 12. Romans 5, I'm sorry, starting in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So here we have the initial affront to life, entering into the world sin and death. And isn't it interesting how the two are connected? It's something we probably don't think about too often, or maybe we think about in a very different way than I'd like to present today. Of course, we know that the penalty for sin is death. But this section reads a little bit differently, as if more is going on here. Somehow, sin brings corruption and mortality. 
It isn't just that something alive now has the penalty of sin laid, or the penalty of death laid on it because of sin, though this is also true, of course, but sin actually, in some sense, causes death. It causes corruption. It's not just a penalty, it's a consequence. And we can see Jesus drawing this same connection throughout several of his miracles. If you turn to John 5, we have a story of a healing at the pool of Bethesda. And Christ heals this man, and I'm not going to read through the whole account, but in verse 14, if you want to look there, after the healing and after the Pharisees come and question this man about how he was healed and who did the healing, and the man's confused, he doesn't really know what to say or what to do, Jesus reconnects with this man and see what the important thing is in Jesus' mind when he speaks to this man again in John 5, 14. See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So to Christ, the important part here, yes, he was obviously willing to heal this man. I, I think that Jesus saw this as a good thing, otherwise he wouldn't have done it. But the important thing, the note that he wants to leave him with, is sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So again, we have this concept of, of infirmity and ailment and death and sin paired together. Now, obviously, we know from other scriptures that it's not because a person sins that they're made unwell. But there is a connection here that I'd like us to kind of follow the thread of throughout the scripture. We can also see this when a paralytic is lowered through the ceiling. Christ doesn't only heal him, but he forgives the man's sins, which was blasphemous. But he does it. I mean, it wasn't blasphemous because he was God, but the Pharisees thought it was. With the woman caught in adultery, he says, go and sin no more. And then constantly he's talking about the faith of people making them well or allowing for the miracle to happen. Speaking to the inverse effect of this. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, there's a verse that I think most people are relatively familiar with, but it's something that just seemed odd to me growing up when we repeated it. I didn't fully understand. I'm not even sure I fully understand now, but I think it plays into this whole discussion about sin and death and ailment and corruption. Isaiah 53, and we'll start reading in verse 4. This is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was, notice this part and the, the parallels between the two things, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So again, we have this connection between sin and death being opposed to righteousness and life in a way that seems to transcend death just being an ultimate penalty for sin. And I've always wondered about this verse and this concept. Did Christ have to suffer? Wasn't his death the atoning sacrifice? Why did he have to have pain to go with it? This has always bothered me. And what does it mean that by his stripes we are healed? Why did his pain have some effect on us? And what was that effect? These are all questions that have run through my head as I've grown up. And then I ask the question, is it just so we can see it and then take it seriously? I've heard that response before. Well, 
You know, if he didn't go through pain, it was a quick and painless death, then maybe we wouldn't feel anything about it. This was just an example so that we might have an emotional connection. And that may be in part true, but always felt unsatisfying to some degree. But if we take this approach that somehow sin and death are intertwined beyond just one being the penalty of the other, then we can see that Christ was walking it all back on the cross, step by step. What he did wasn't just take on death so that we don't have to. He also took on the pain and corruption of our very selves that comes from sin and leads to death. He also took on sin itself. When I was thinking about this, I thought, this is so cool. The way, the truth, and the life took on the path to death, the lie of sin, and the death that comes from it so that we could have healing. He filled every hole in that enormous problem of sin, death, and corruption that none of us ever could because none of us are the way, the truth, or the life. And isn't this healing one of the most greatly anticipated aspects of the kingdom of God? Don't we talk about that with such excitement more than almost we do some other things? Healing. But what does that mean? I mean, I think we we almost think about it in such a superficial way. So I'd like to deepen that. And that will be the, the overall thing I hope you take from this. That even just the promise of healing, if we understand that promise coming with the kingdom of God... It is so rich and so hopeful. Turn with me to Isaiah 35. And I'm going to read this pretty quickly because I'd like to read the, the whole chapter. It's, it's relatively short um, and I might jump around a little bit. So if you just want to listen, that's okay. But this is talking about a healing that is coming. It says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road. It shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go upon it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So think for a moment. If sin and evil and darkness have brought this death and corruption and decay and horrible state of being, and they are inextricably linked and intertwined, what will it mean for sin when the horrible state of things is reversed? 
We often think of the coming healing and restoration of the world in a very self-physical aspect or, or perspective. I won't get hurt anymore, or I won't hurt right now anymore. My knee will feel better. I won't be rushing towards death. I won't get sick anymore. And this is all true. This is all good. This is definitely a thing we should hope for and look forward to, but there is so much more here. When we focus on the bad right in front of our face, sometimes the good becomes blurry because it's farther off. I hurt now. I'm sad now. I'm dying now. And removing our focus from those things is incredibly hard. But we have a hope waiting to be seen if we look up from our current situation, our current ailments, and realize that the promise of healing and restoration isn't just bringing us back to younger days so that we feel better physically. It is a total shift in the state of our world. Consider this. If death is removed, who has the power to murder anymore? Who will fear for their lives? If sorrow is destroyed, who will still try to find joy in the wrong things like drugs, sex, alcohol, or crime? If minds are finally whole so that anxiety and self-doubt don't exist anymore, who will suffer from jealousy? Who will make rash decisions or be paralyzed by indecision? If people are finally able to love themselves, how much easier will it be for them to love their neighbors? If the land is made right, who would think of abandoning their, abandoning their families trying to work just to feed those same people? Who will kill for food and water? Who will enslave other human beings? If disease is abolished, who will extort the sick? If language is made pure, whose thoughts can remain corrupt? Name a sin that can thrive when everything else is healed. There is none. And thinking of sin like this as something that needs to be healed allows me to look at the evil of this world with a little bit more empathy, or at least the evil people, not the evil acts. It allows me to hold out hope for even the most evil people on earth that once they are healed, their sin might also disappear. And in light of everything that's been going on in the world right now, I've been praying for a swift and decisive end to terrorism in Israel. I believe personally that those people that committed those despicable things have given up their right to life. But I've also really tried to consider them as sick and in need of healing. It's like when a dog is sick. I don't hate the dog for being sick. Yes, you might put it down, but you don't hate it for being sick. That's an act of mercy, an act of love. So I continue to pray for the promise of healing that is coming, knowing that it's going to take care of so much more than just the outcome of sin, death. It's going to have a huge impact on sin itself. We can't think of the kingdom of God without thinking about the need for repentance. And we cannot think about eternal life without thinking about the sting of death. That's just reality. That's just how things are. But in focusing on the simplicity and the beauty of the kingdom of God, not only do we see how impure this world is, but we also get a purer and clearer picture of what to expect in the coming kingdom and of what we should be actively hoping for. And that should make our day-to-day -day lives so much easier, especially when we experience incredible evil, horrible pain, or debilitating lack. 
I'd like you to consider one more verse as I close here in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there. But don't only think here about the freedom from aching bodies, but about a complete transformation where the path to death, sin, and the cause of death and death itself are completely wiped away and everything is healed. Where the kingdom of God, eternal life, finally deals the killing blow to that enemy that attacked mankind when sin sin entered the world through Adam. And I hope after this we can pray more earnestly, thy kingdom come. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, it says this, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this immortality, or so when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 